This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. The episodes in this feed were originally published on Crawlspace. Please use caution while listening and follow Crawlspace Podcast for more. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing fantastic today, Tim. It's a great, great episode that we have coming up. I cannot wait for the listeners to hear this amazing writer who delved into the mind of one of the most despicable characters that we know doing this whole true crime thing. Uh, but before we get to this wonderful woman, Tim, how are you, sir? <laughs> I am doing great over here. And yeah, this was a fascinating conversation with author Jillian Lauren. And she wrote a new book called Behold the Monster, confronting America's most prolific serial killer. And that is Samuel Little, who has confessed to 93 murders and 60 confirmed. And Jillian spoke with him and met with Samuel Little uh, a lot. Uh, she spoke with them on the phone and she helped to unearth how many victims he truly had. And she's really integral in matching some of the Jane Doe's and missing people in this country with Samuel Little as their killer. And she started writing him letters and then visiting him. And wow, it's a wild job that she did. And this book is unbelievable. Right. And you have to read the book, Behold the Monster. You have to imagine that this was not an easy task to undertake for anybody to put themselves in this position. And she did it for the good of the victims who were named, but mostly for the good of the victims to bring some sort of closure, some sort of something to these people, these individuals that have no names. And she lists them all out in the beginning of the book. She put herself out there and risked a lot emotionally, physically, financially to make sure that this story was out there. I can't tell you, like halfway through this conversation, I was just kind of beside myself with the amount of courage that that takes. Yeah, absolutely. You can tell that it was a wild journey for Jillian. And let us know what you think of this episode on social media. Send us a message at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod. And while you're out there, check out Jillian's website. It's JillianLauren.com. And you can pick up a copy of Behold the Monster that is coming this month in July 2023. So you're really going to love this one. And for those of you who haven't yet, and I know there's just a handful, feel free to swing on over to our subscription service, Tim, so that they can hear this without the ads and every other episode that we do over here, including the first seven episodes of our new series, Dark Valley. I'm going on and on. I totally forgot where they should go, so I need a reminder. <laughs> Listeners can find Crawlspace Premium on Apple Podcasts, but if you're not an Apple user, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and find the same product there, early releases, ad-free episodes, and our weekly bonus show. So make sure to check that out. All right, we'll be right back with author Jillian Lauren. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Mm-hmm. 
Welcome to the podcast, Jillian Lauren. How are you today? I'm doing well today. Thank you. How are you, Tim? I'm great. Thanks a lot for asking. And thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, we're in the unique company of somebody who is probably a person who has got like as deep into the mind of one of the most prolific, if not the most prolific serial killer in American history in yourself, Jillian. And we're so grateful to have the opportunity to speak with you about that. But before we get into that, can you um, let the audience know a little bit about you and and how you came to do uh, what you do and how you came to write this remarkable book? Uh, well, I'm I'm a writer, and uh, I always have been. Now this is my fourth book. I'm a best-selling author, and I was writing a mystery novel. Actually, I was writing a fictional book, and I interviewed this famous detective um, who, if anyone is a fan of Michael Conley, who everyone is a fan of Michael Conley, um, will recognize as Renee Ballard, uh, and and that is Detective Mitzi Roberts. Uh, that's who that character is based on, and I got this incredible interview with her, which no one gets. And it was about a, a mystery book I was writing because she is the custodial detective of the Black Dahlia case, which is one of the most famous cold cases in history, will never be solved. But every cold case in Los Angeles has a custodial detective. So I was talking to her about some of the Black Dahlia conspiracy theories and why this really will never be solved. And at the end of the interview, I asked her, you know, it was like the last of the iced tea. And I asked her, what are you most proud of? I like to end an interview on an up note, right? And she said, I'm proud of them all. But I did catch the serial killer once. And that was pretty cool. And I was like, what? Like, I buried the lead here. Like, <laughs> um, tell me about this. And she said, well, you know, we got this grant from the Department of Justice. There is the cold case special section in uh, the Los Angeles Robbery Homicide Division, which is, um, if you live in Los Angeles, it's the division that handles the celebrity cases, the big cases, the serial killer cases. We got a lot of them here. And they had him. He was already in prison um, and had been convicted for these three murders that they connected with DNA. And um, she said there are far many more victims. And I tried to mobilize um law enforcement across the country. It's very hard. Like interjurisdictional communication is very hard and also sometimes competitive. Just nothing ever came of it. And I thought, wow, you know, here I have now stumbled upon a story in the middle of my mystery novel. I stumbled upon a story of an underreported serial killer. And maybe, maybe I'm going to put this book on the shelf 
and try to, you know, I, I had done a lot of work for, I did a lot of work for Los Angeles magazine and, uh, I was working for a New York magazine at the time and I pitched it to them. I said, I think I got a serial killer here. And they were like, we're not just going to do some, you know, like salacious serial killer story. You got to have an angle. So I started writing him and he, you know, it takes a while to get into a men's maximum security prison, prison in Los Angeles. Um, so, you know, I was writing him for a while while he proclaimed his innocence. And I told him about my, you know, interest in his case. And then I finally had that day when I walked into the prison and began to interview him. And the first day I got nothing. And I said, I was just like, I'm not going to listen to this guy lie, you know, like drive an hour and a half at four in the morning to get into a prison to listen to this guy lie. I was like, I'm giving him one more day. And he was transactional. He's a serial killer. He's, you know, everything is about, you know, what can you give me for what I can give you? And and he wanted a TV. And he said, are you going to buy me a TV? And I was like, I don't know, Sam, am I? Because <laughs> you know what they're not going to pay me for? A book about how you're innocent. <laughs> right. And he was like, he had these long yellow nails that were like claws. And he started to like bang them on the table and then he pointed at me and he was just like, you got me, little miss. What do you want to know? You want to know about the first one? And then he started this like unbelievable like, confessions, you know, and, and not to be cliche, but I, I stood there and I was like digging my toes into my shoes and it felt like, you know, ice water was pouring over my head. I was like, oh my gosh, did I just do this? Is he confessing? And yes, in fact, he was. That's how our relationship developed and, and then it continued from there. But what happened is, uh, he was already in the middle of a federal investigation. So I inserted myself as a journalist into a federal investigation of perhaps the most prolific serial killer in American history. Um, that wasn't the plan. <laughs> <laughs> right. Be careful what you ask for. <laughs> but that's how that started. That's that's all fascinating. Um, I would like to to go back a little bit and and just find out about um, why you started writing him letters in the first place, and and what was that like um, when you um, you know started corresponding with him. Well, I started writing him letters in the first place because I was being strategic. I had an idea for a story, and I had an idea that maybe I could put some heat on this guy. Like, that's my job as a journalist. I'm not a cop, right? My job isn't to solve murders. I did. 
That did happen, which still sometimes I can't believe, but it did. And, uh, you know, my idea was just get some heat on it, get some attention on it, get some cops interested and maybe look at their cold cases and use our advancing forensic technology, you know, that we didn't have at the time that Sam was murdering women after woman after woman, including transgender women. I always want to point that out because it's particularly hard to solve. They're often misgendered. I wanted to know, you know, how it happened and then... I thought maybe I could get people excited about it. When we speak to other people who have written prisoners, some to, you know, not to the extent of Sam Little, but, you know, some prisoners are, are pretty pretty dangerous, pretty hardcore. Uh, they, they typically don't get the letter back. They don't get a return letter. What was it like when you received a return letter from him? It was like a movie scene. I mean, if you want somebody who delivers in terms of serial killer creepy, you know, it was like, you know, torn yellow notebook, like in all caps. He always signed his name with this drawing that he did. He, He was an artist. He drew his victims. That was a big part of how we've been able to connect them. And he would draw a picture of what looked like a man either with giant ears or a monkey. And the monkey was either crying or happy. And if the monkey was crying, it was a bad letter. And if the monkey was happy, it was a worse letter. It was all the serial killer stuff. It was, you know, I will live in heaven in a palace with all the babies I killed. You know, Jesus forgave me for every murder because all you have to do is ask to be forgiven. And I asked to be forgiven every time I murdered someone. And I I asked him once, well, what if they didn't forgive you? What happens to them as you were killing them? And he said, well, I'd hate to know what happened to them if you know, they didn't forgive me while I was killing them. And that was probably the moment, that was probably the worst moment in our conversations that I had with him in person, where like really I could have crawled over that table and killed him myself. I was just so angry. But, you know, my mother, she's very, very proper. And she always taught me, you know, you cross your, you cast your feet at the ankles and as if you are holding an aspirin between your knees. You keep your knees together. You keep your hands folded in your lap. And I was just like, oh, please, Emily Post. But I was sitting there exactly like that. And I was like, you know what is really beneficial about this? It helps you keep a calm face. If you're really clenching an aspirin between your knees and that's where your focus is, you can keep a calm face. When someone starts to tell you about the last words of women's lives. Wow. Now, did you believe him when he was saying 
the thing about the afterlife and, and meeting them again and, and actually being forgiven? Or did that just sound like bullshit he was saying at the time? Do I do I believe that that's going to happen or do I believe no. that he believed it? Yes, the second one. Because I'm I'm actually I have a bunk bed in that in that palace too. <laughs> <laughs> According to Sam, he said you're going to lose everything you ever cared about. I own you. Um and we, you know, you've got a place in my palace in heaven and you know, I don't know. I don't know if Sam actually believed that. What I do know is that he, you know, he used the Bible as as an apology. You know, like Jesus was his apologist. Um, I remember he said, you know, you've committed sins. You a hoe. Oh, do we not cover that? My first memoir is about, you know, I was the mistress of the Prince of Brunei, who was the richest man in the world at the time when I was three days over 18. He said, you a hoe, Jill, you know, and you're a sinner too. And in the eyes of God, all sins are equal. And I said, you know, Sam, I think even in the Bible, there's sort of a hierarchy, right? Like, so let's go over the Ten Commandments, say. What's the first? I don't kill, right? Or steal? One of those? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. But no, he didn't have the answer either. <laughs> right. <laughs> I didn't even try to guess. <laughs> I was like, I went to Hebrew school, man. Like, you don't <laughs> I was like, and now we're going to get on to honor your father and your mother. But, you know, don't kill's definitely in there. But he said, you know, all sins are the same. And I just stole a cookie from the cookie jar. And I said, you know, in which of those Ten Commandments does it say don't steal the cookie from the cookie jar? I don't think it does. <laughs> not not in so many words. No, all sins are not the same. <laughs> How do you think he reckoned? I guess it's easy in someone's mind, like his mind, to justify what he did by applying the biblical rules to it and you know, allowing himself to be forgiven, but he targeted women and transgendered and those in marginalized communities intentionally right. so that they wouldn't be discovered. Right. Because he counted on that. No one would care. Yeah. But did he ever talk to you about how that's in complete contradiction to Jesus in the Bible and how Jesus would, you know, had disciples that were marginalized and that was the purpose of Jesus was to, you know, it just feels so hypocritical to me. Uh, hypocritical is the least <laughs> of that man's crimes. Yeah. Did he ever talk about that? Like he's going completely against the Bible. He, you know, he didn't live in a world of he didn't live in in our minds you know he lived in a different world in his mind and anything was justified he lived in a world of wanting and taking he was just really smart you can use anything to make an argument for yourself right and he would say no actually you know it was saying Paul, you know, who 
was forgiven between the stirrup and the ground. Um, and I was like, well, what if your victims didn't see the ground coming fast enough? Were they also forgiven? I mean, he, yes, I think he believed it, but he believed it because he wanted to. Because he thought God made him with this urge, right? This urge was to kill people. He, this was his sexual pleasure. He couldn't have sex in the way that we most like people who have, you know, are, are not psychopaths would consider sex. He couldn't. You know, sex for him was murder. And I remember one night after seeing him pacing the kitchen, just thinking, you know, thinking, thinking, because because that's what I do. I'm a writer, you know? Like, I, I'm, I'm going to really think about what he says to me. And I was like, well, what if I couldn't get pleasure from anything but killing? Would I kill? And, you know, and I was, and my husband was just like, hello, hello, this is your husband here, Jillian, this is you. And no, the answer is no. (sighs) You know, like the answer is no, you wouldn't. (sighs) And the answer, Sam was, yeah, like if I can get away with it. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. And you uh, said in your book that in Sam's version of the, of the world, he loves. And you kind of indicated that a little bit in your in your answer. What did you mean by that? Like, how does he express? I know his version of, you know, being intimate is is the the, the homicide. But how does he express, like, love? What's his version of that? Well, I mean, he told me he loved me all the time. Um, and, you know, there was one time near – I mean, it, it was years of interviews. So there – you know, it didn't start out – I think people tend to um, point out, you know, the the more confrontational conversations I had with him. But they weren't always like that, uh, you know. But there was one at the end where I was just like, I was like, you fucking motherfucker. I'm so sick of this, you know. And and I was just like, what do you want the world to know about you? What do you want me to say? What Like, you're dying, old man. You're dying and you're famous. So, like, what do you want the world to know? He's like, I want the world to know something good about me. He said, I want them to know I would have been a lawyer. And I was like, first of all, no one likes being a lawyer. And why? Why? Okay, great. Why did you want to be a lawyer? Well, because I could, like, handle these big cases for people, these unfair cases for people where they're framed like I was. And I was like, Sam, you weren't framed you were caught. It's different. <laughs> and then he just said, I'd want the world to know that I love you. I'd want the world to know that I love, that I did this all out of love. And I was like, yeah, and they're not going to pay me for a book about how much you love people either. So why don't you tell me the truth? You know, and it was just about 
it was about ownership, really. Like, he believed that by murdering these women, then he owned them. And that was what he wanted. And if you can figure out why that is someone's desire, then give me a ring. But that that was really what he wanted, was ownership. Wow. And what was it like, I guess, just being in his presence? Um, I understand when he started to confess to you, um, that must have been a, uh, a wild moment that, that you kind of described a little bit. But w- what about that first meeting with him? Well, the first meeting, I'd never been to a men's maximum security prison before, but I do have some friends who have been scumbags, so I called them <laughs> and asked them what to do. And they said, don't show up without quarters because you're not cool if your visitor doesn't show up with quarters to buy you stuff from the vending machine. So I showed up and I was fully expecting the, you know, the the glass and the phone and the hand and the whole thing. And I was just taken into the regular visitor's room where there's like, Legos for people's kids and their families sitting at tables. And I was sitting at this table and I was watching this red line, the inmates stand behind it before they let them in or before they let them out. And I'm like, that's where he's going to be, right? Except he's in a wheelchair. So he wheeled up behind me. (laughs) So Sam Little wheels up behind me. And I was like, hi, Sam. Like, where's the blueprint for this? As a journalist, as, you know, as a serious author, as an academic, as an anything, I was like, where is the blueprint for this? He startled the shit out of me. <laughs> and then, you know, and then I just began to build rapport. I know that you don't walk in and just go, tell me how many people you killed that you haven't admitted to killing. You know, like that that's not what's going to work. What's going to work is I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make a friend. And then he's going to tell me the story. Um, so I told him about, uh, I overcooked my meatloaf so badly one night that, like, I even... <laughs> My pot holders, like it was burning my hands. So I threw the meatloaf into the pool and then I offered either one of my children $5 if they would dive and get it. Because <laughs> I just didn't want to go into the pool and rescue the meatloaf to throw out. Um, you know, like that was the kind of conversation that I had with him that broke him. Really, I mean, like, I won't say I broke him, but that I cracked him. Was it because you gave him a little bit of your personality and gave him a little insight into, like, something personal? Yeah, and also, like, I, you know, he doesn't have a window to the world, right? I mean, maybe he never did, but, like, I gave him a window into this world that he imagined for himself, but really was never a possibility just due to his 
do to his brain. Like, this is what a normal life looks like. I remember one time he said, you know, if I'd only met a woman like you, you know, at Christmas, I'd be sitting by the fire with the children between my legs. And I thought, you know, that's actually not where the children go. <sighs> the children don't go between your legs, Sam. Like, are you, do you mean like you had some kids on your lap? Do you, you know? But it was a perfect Freudian slip. Well, I guess a good segue from a perfect Freudian slip is to talk about his mom. And you have some material in the book that's dedicated to his mother. Not dedicated to, but you write about him and his relationship with his mom. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, first of all, he was raised by his paternal grandparents. And he believed that they were his parents. And he didn't meet his birth mother until he was 25. She had contacted him when he was in prison um, and said, you know, I have some money. I live in Carl Gables. You know, I want my son back. And then he went to see her. And uh, and there was definitely some sort of incestuous activity. There were incestuous thoughts. She wanted a grandchild so badly, he said, that she drilled a hole in his door to make sure he was having sex with his wife at the time. Um, and yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, she was a terrible alcoholic. Um, she was horribly abused. I, I can't speak for Bessie May. I can only say that Sam had a relationship with her that most of us would consider unconventional. And you you said that she was horribly abused as well. So this is something that's just been passed down through generations. Yes, absolutely. And, and is mostly the case, I believe. You know, when you find people who are this violent... This violent, there's a neurological situation going on as well. But, um, you know, there's almost always childhood abuse and trauma. Yeah. And and that is a thing that's passed down from generation to generation, epigenetically even, right? Even in our very cells, abuse is passed down, much less in our family structures. Right. It's tragic. Um, but when he started confessing to you, what did you think then? Did you think they were real confessions? I know you had, um, sort of befriended him in a way before then just to get to this point. So when he started doing that, did you believe him? It wasn't a question I asked myself at the time because all I was doing was focusing on the confessions. I was just like, because you can't take a recording device into a prison in California, not since Manson. And so I was just like everything. My, my father was a gambler and he taught me this technique called a, a memory palace, right? Where you basically place every person at the table, if it's a poker table or, you know, place every piece of the story in 
a space in your mind that you remember very well. Most people will start with their childhood homes. So I was just like focused. I was just like, don't freak. Do not freak right now. Like there is no space for freaking. There's no space for sentimentality. There's no space for gore or horror. Like what you need to do now is be a journalist and get this story and get it right. So I think maybe it hurts me more now to think about it. Like when I actually read my own book, which I, you know, when you get the actual book, the actual like beautiful hardcover, oh my gosh, I really did it. I wrote a book. Um, and I, you know, I was looking for passages to send to people looking, I was reading, I was like, this is horrifying. I mean, I think I was like, I was also like, wow, you did a great job of that science too. You know, I, I I really think that (laughs) I kind of nailed that and that was hard. Um, you know, I'm talking to like the greatest neuroscientists and psychologists and forensic psychologists in the world. And I think it did a great job of explaining, you know, our interviews. Um, and then I was, you know, reading the passages about the murders and just like, I, I actually don't think I can even read this again. But at the time, I just felt like, do your job do your job. And also you've been through enough in your life. Like I've had a life with a lot of trauma. I was like, you have been through enough in your life to not freak out. So don't freak out and just remember every single fucking word he says and then call the cops. And that's what I did. Yeah. And you put it together in this book. And the one thing that stands out to me is when we have guests on or when we tell the story of individuals who have been uh, the victim of a a heinous crime or we want to make sure that we highlight the victims of a serial killer, we, we will go through the names and we'll say these are the victims. But he confessed to 93 and it's you it's it's nearly impossible to go through the names and histories of 93 people in a 45 minute conversation uh, right. on, on on a podcast but your right. book is that kind of not kind of your book is that honoring of these victims because you don't even have his name in the title which i thought was amazing was that a was that intentional the very first yes and the very first page is all is all the victims i mean even right even every unknown, 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 um, which I hope with all my heart, this book will help close, you know, help close that number between the 93 confessions and the, we're at 62, I think now, 63, 62 confirmed. Yvonne Pless, a couple of weeks ago in Macon, Georgia, was just confirmed. And every single one to me is worth every bit of pain I went through to tell this story. But the there's a list. There's there's the best list I could come up with. 
Um, and it's the most comprehensive list there is. Wow. And um, so how did the process of verifying these confessions happen? Um, well, so Texas Ranger James Holland. So there were the initial three murders, Guadalupe Apodaca, Audrey Nelson, and Carol Alford, for which Sam was convicted in 2014. And then there's this Texas Ranger, full hat, everything. The whole thing, cowboy star who is celebrated for being this serial killer whisperer. But, you know, in order for him to have any kind of jurisdiction, uh, he'd have to have a Texas case. So he started working with the FBI and the Department of Justice, and they found a Texas case. They found Denise Brothers in 1991. And with that, he was able to go and start interviewing Sam. Uh, so Texas Ranger James Holland began these interviews in California State Prison and then began to bring in, uh, well, and then he was extradited to Texas, and then he began to bring in local detectives from jurisdictions all over the country who had cold cases that matched Sam's M.O., so that they could interview him and see, you know, perhaps perhaps they would be able to solve these cold cases. Um, and in many cases, they did. And at what point do you think that uh, Sam Little had identified the fact that he could get away with this so easily by crossing state lines and targeting these people? He was 30, I think, you know, which is a little bit late, but... Often when serial killers progress, you know, they, they tend to escalate, you know, first he smothered his dog. And I think that uh, he began, like you know, and then he finally killed his first victim and he was working in, and that was in Miami. That was Mary Brosley in 1971 and um, he was working for the sanitation department, and he heard, oh, they found a foot coming out of the ground, you know, in the Everglades. Somebody, you know, somebody was murdered. And he was sure that and that was the only victim he ever even attempted to bury. Otherwise, he just started leaving them by the side of the road because he was sure he was going to get caught. He was sure. And then he didn't. And then no one cared, no one looked. And then it began to escalate from there. And he always, you know, he told me, you know, I I, I was just like, you know, I, I had my own run-ins with violent men, with drugs, you know, and I'm glad I didn't run into you on one dark night. And he was like, I never killed anyone like you. Like, I, I wouldn't kill any fancy New York journalist. I didn't kill any governors or senators. He was like, you know, I killed prostitutes and addicts and people no one cared about. He, he was, I would say, exceptionally talented at targeting the most vulnerable and the least recognized people, you know, like they, 
uh, you know, cops in LA in the 80s would call in a would call in a 187, would call in a homicide, you know, uh, no humans involved. It's an NHI. It's a homicide, no humans involved. And that just means it was a dead hooker in a dumpster. Or they just call it a no one. It's a homicide, you know, on 55th and Central. It's a no one. And he was he was very good at that. I mean, it goes without saying that that is just a much larger problem within the organizations that respond to these crimes. Right. And the law enforcement community. And, and yeah. my hope is that both attitudes and science are changing now and that we'll have a more level field. Yeah. I mean, your book is essentially the look what happened because of this. Right explanation you know i mean you you've already categorized these people as no one so look what happened right so hopefully like attitudes do change there i've seen them changing you know i've talked to detectives across the country i've talked to detectives who really care and often their cold case detectives are the only ones in their jurisdiction they work the night shift i'm hopeful I mean, I walk away from this book both a totally changed person and hopeful. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. When you started hearing all these confessions, and and I, I understand it's up to 90 um, or 93. 93, that the sheer amount of that is is insane. Take us through your thought process at that point. Well, I didn't hear all 93. So not the 93 are Jim Hollins. I mean, I, I didn't hear every single confession. And there was a point at which, you know, law enforcement was talking to me and just like, please, you know, every single detail you get that's different than the one we get, then you've contaminated an investigation. So then we have to go look in that detail. And, you know, so... There was a point at which I stopped hammering on getting every single one and just focused on specific cases. For instance, Alice Duval, which was um, the murder that I solved really bottom to top, top to bottom, whatever. Um, uh, and I'm still very close with her family and uh, I'm very proud of that. And it is and it's captured, amazingly enough, uh, in episode five of Confronting a Serial Killer, which was um, the documentary Joe Berlinger made about me writing this book um, and trying to seek justice for these women. Yeah, and it's a great documentary, too. Now, for those listeners who saw you on Confronting a Serial Killer, um, what can you tell them about your new book, Behold the Monster, uh, that might surprise them? I think the whole thing will surprise them. You know, the, the documentary was one thing, and the documentary is is Joe's documentary. You know, Joe Berlinger was the director, not me. Um, it was more about me than by me. This book is by me, and um, so you'll hear my observations, the travel I did, the work I did, the... You know, and, and you'll hear it in my words, and I'm a real good writer. 
So, so I, I do believe also the book will entertain you. And I always hope to do that. And I, I realize that they may sound crass in this scenario, but I do hope to entertain you. And I hope to entertain you in order to educate you and get you interested and bring you in and make you care. Um, so what you'll find in the book that's surprising is probably me. Yeah, I was actually going to ask that is... Uh... But you kind of just answered it, what the importance was in, you know, injecting a little bit of yourself here and there throughout the book. It was never my plan. The whole plan of this, because I've been writing memoirs, and the plan of this was to take myself out of the center of the story. You know, I was going to write a a traditional reportage um, and not have it be about me um and then and yet here i am (laughs) was it just harder to tell that story because it was all um you know it all was kind of filtered through you anyway i think that the story comes to you you know i started writing it a different way it turned into a million things the writing process is a mystery Uh, And I also think it's a gift, and I'm sorry if that sounds corny, but, um, you know, I think the story came to me and also how to structure it and how to write it. And, you know, you're talking about an 80-year span of time, so you can't exactly write it chronologically. Like, you're going to need a guide through this. So, you know, as a narrator... I sort of just think of myself as a guide. Right. And you're guided by the good stories and the bad stories and your story and other people's stories. And I I just want to... uh, And the victims. Yeah, that's what I was actually just going to say. And the survivors. Can you tell us a little bit about the survivors that you acknowledge in the book? Yes. So uh, there were four survivors. I uh, One is MIA and presumed dead. Layla McLean was had already passed from cancer by the time I worked on the book. Uh, Hilda Nelson was the best interview I've ever done in my life. Not me. It was just the most fascinating and productive. And I think it taught me a whole lot. Uh, and then Lori Carriage in Portland was also an incredible interview and had such a memory. And the whole story uh, was really horrifying. And to talk to another survivor was really cool. To talk to Hilda was like, I got a view into a world that I never would have, I never would normally have gotten to see. You know, I, I I was not a black prostitute in Mississippi, in rural Mississippi in 1987, you know. And she told me, you know, there, there couldn't be a crime committed against a black prostitute in Mississippi at that time. It just simply wasn't a crime. That was confirmed by the police there, Lieutenant Darren Versaiga, who was there for the interview. 
you know, it was an incredible interview. And at the end of it, I, you know, I said, Hilda, uh, you know, can I take you to dinner? Can I? And she was like, no offense, but I don't truck with white people. And, and she's like, you know, everyone at my work so always like, Hilda, you're so funny. Hilda, you're so fun. Hilda, come out for drinks with us. And then one drink and that N-word's going to start slipping out. And we're going to have words. She said, so thank you, but I don't truck with white people. And I was just like, no offense taken. I mean, like, no, that wouldn't have happened with me. Um, but I certainly heard that that was her experience of her life. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Now, how did you feel when you heard that Sam Little died? I got a text, and this was long before I stopped, you know, turning off my phone at night. I was just like perpetually on hypervigilance for years. Like I had a crossbody bag I wore in my own home that had, you know, my little reporter's notebook and my phone in it, just, just in case I got that call. And, you know, I happened to be out in the garden and uh, no one liked me very much. It was, you know, hypervigilance is not a very nice state to be in. But I got a text at about five in the morning from Texas Ranger James Holland that said, pick up your phone. And then the call came at, I think, six. And Sam had named me as his next of kin. So, you know, I got the call from the prison uh, with their condolences, you know, that Sam had died of COVID-related complications on December 30th. And they were like, we're very sorry. And I was like, I, I don't even know what to say. I, I don't know what to say. I didn't even know what to think. Like, part of me was relieved. And I've even said that to victims' families and had them look at me funny. You know, like, you're not supposed to be relieved when someone dies. But I was relieved to not have to hear his voice ever again. I really was. And also, I knew that that, that was it. Like we had all the information we're going to have from him. There was, there was no more going back to him and saying, no, you were wrong about this street. Couldn't have been this street. It would have to have been the other street. Is there possibly a way you could have made a left turn, not a right turn? That opportunity was gone. Uh, and also I didn't have to talk to a serial killer every day of my life. So, uh, the, Feelings were really mixed. Um, I was supposed to get all of his possessions. Like I said, I was his next of kin. So um, I had arranged with several neuroscientists at UC Irvine and Stanford to get them his brain, to get them this serial killer's brain. Uh, and it was the middle of COVID and the coroner's office was like, well, he didn't fill out the paperwork correctly. Well, uh, you know, I'm sorry. And, and I felt so ghoulish. I was just like, just, can you put that brain on ice? Just, just <laughs> really seriously. Like, I'm not a ghoul. I'm just trying to turn a 
Sal's here and show his silk purse here. Give me that brain. I would have gone in there with a hacksaw myself if I could have. But it didn't happen. And a year later, I get a call for the coroner's office and with an apology saying, you know, we realize that, you know, you were, you know, not necessarily treated respectfully. And also, you know, I'm the new inspector on this. I was the inspector on Manson. And frankly, what happened with Manson's remains was a disgrace. And we believe that you'll handle this respectfully. So would you like to come pick up his ashes? And my 10-year-old was home from school sick that day, and my husband was out on tour. (laughs) Or he was out somewhere. He was recording. And I was like, I'll be right there. Jovi, get in the car. (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, nice, Mom. Roll nice. And I was like, oh, yeah? You like shoes? You get a job. You know, come on, we're going to the coroner's office to pick up some serial killer ashes. Get in the car, kid. I'll get you some McNuggets after. (laughs) And um, yeah, so I don't remember the question, but I do remember like my feverish, sweaty 10-year-old's hand holding it and walking up to the door of the coroner's office (laughs) and getting that, getting that box of ashes and also all of his possessions. I have a storage facility full of fan mail, hundreds and hundreds of pieces of fan mail. Also check out my TikTok because I do read them aloud. In case you're curious as to what people have to say to a serial killer, um, if you go to my TikTok channel, Jillian Lauren Arthur, I do read them, letters to serial killers. Um, Some of the writers have been more appreciative than others. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't reveal anyone's identities or anything, but yeah. Right. Wow. Um, well, Jillian, this is uh, this has been an amazing conversation, and uh, we really appreciate you spending some time with us here today, uh, talking about your book and um, the documentary "Confronting a Serial Killer." Thank you. Yes, and the book "Behold the Monster: Confronting a Serial Killer." Um, and please, there are all kinds of really cool pre-order incentives right now on my website, JillianLauren.com. Um, you can find me on TikTok. Like I said, I'm, I'm reading those letters. I'm also reading letters from Sam. And most importantly, um, I'm talking about the victims that we haven't yet identified. So, so please look, cause you can find me on TikTok, but more importantly, let's, let's find these women and restore their names. 